This is the Startups A to Z podcast. I'm Hillary Hirsch. And I'm Mark Sholin. Hillary and I are here to share conversations all about the Arizona startup community. And thanks for picking us out of all the different podcasts um, out there in the world. I actually heard um, when I was driving over here today that um, on NPR, there's apparently 285,000 podcasts in existence right now. A ridiculous amount. Wow. Uh, and so for anyone who's picking this one, I commend you on making a good choice. And uh, hopefully, well, you won't disappoint. Today, we are interviewing uh, Greg Scoresby, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Campus Logic, which is a financial aid SaaS company that simplifies the financial aid experience for students and also lowers the administrative costs of administering financial aid to schools. Um, Greg, you chose the topic of ed tech. Can you explain to us why you're passionate about this topic? Sure. Uh, so there are some great uh, education technology companies here in Arizona. I think there is a real lack of awareness of what's going on. But uh, And so part of what I wanted to do was work with others around the state to help promote the spectacular uh, education technology environment here, particularly uh, with a focus on startups. There is a whole lot of startup activity in Arizona in general, and specific to ed tech, uh, there is just a lot of great things going. And I feel like there's been an absence of, of promotion of the ed tech entrepreneurship uh, ecosystem here. And so I wanted to work with others in the community to shine a spotlight on on that. And let's set the stage a bit about what brought you to EdTech to begin with. So um, uh, from what I understand, you're a serial entrepreneur. So this is, the, uh, this is the third company that I've started myself. I've invested in a couple of other companies where I've taken an active role and then also been part of uh, another startup that I, I didn't found. But uh, yeah, the third one that I've, I've started. I think, uh, I think I have addiction issues. Well, I think most entrepreneurs <laughs> yeah. do in one form or another. Hopefully, good kinds, or at least we channel <laughs> right. that energy in, right. in positive ways. Um, and so, you've been part of uh, education technology in one form or another for how many years at this point? Well, about eighteen years ago, I was working for uh, a large um, consulting services and outsourcing services company, no longer around, but a company called Arthur Anderson. And uh, one of the one of the first clients I had when I worked there was the University of Phoenix. And I uh, sold to them and then ran for a couple of years an outsourcing contract where uh, if you got a student loan in 1998 or 1999 at University of Phoenix, it was processed in a center that I ran on their behalf. So that was a great, a really great learning experience early in my career and uh, had, had a great uh, some really great outcomes there. Met some great people, and I've been in and around the student finance space for uh, since that time. And that uh, student finance is a huge part of the higher education experience. Without financial aid, without uh, those those programs that exist, we don't have a higher education industry in this country. It's a it's a key part of giving access to everyone for uh, higher education. Now, I'm an Arizona native. Um, what brought you to Arizona to begin with? 
So I was raised here. Um, my dad was a, a counselor at Westwood High School in, you know, in Mesa, Arizona, the year it opened in 1963. He, uh, he moved on to become uh, a, a professor at Mesa Community College, taught psychology there, had private practice uh, here as well. So uh, we are longtime Arizona people. I moved away uh, after high school. I was away for uh, 10 or 11 years for college and graduate school and work, and then came back in, uh, in the late 90s to, uh, to back to my roots here. My, wife's also, my wife was raised in Phoenix, so uh, coming back, was this is home for us. What is unique about the education industry? When I think about ed tech, I think it must be a really hard industry to break into because education is kind of seen as a public good to everybody. Um, what's unique about what you started and companies that are able to break through in this industry? Well, there are really two sides to the ed tech world. There are, there are companies that affect what happens in the classroom. Those are learning companies. Uh, you might think of, they could be digital media companies, textbook companies, uh, but there are things that affect learning. And then their second category of ed tech companies are those that affect the administration of education. So changing the business of education. And that's what we focus on, the, the latter. But those, those two categories you see uh, across the board. And the challenges uh, and, and needs are unique for each of those segments. So getting teachers to change the way, and, and professors, whether you're talking about K-12 through or, or higher ed, getting, getting teachers to change the way that they deliver learning has a unique set of challenges uh, and and there are some early adopters and there's some late adopters like in any industry but the ch- one of the challenges for for companies on the learning side of education or the classroom side of education is to find those early adopters willing to change uh, and adopt new learning models and then on the uh, on the on the side of ed tech that we're on on the on the business side uh, getting administrators to change the processes, change the software, change the, the way they conduct business also has a, a unique set of challenges. There's a whole lot of legacy investment in infrastructure at, at schools in this country. We focus on higher education, and there there's a whole new set of cloud technologies that are taking over the world, not just in you know in education and beyond. But uh, I think now, only now, we, we have, we're seeing administrators in higher education in particular, where we're focused, start to recognize there is tremendous uh, cost savings benefit and student service benefit by adopting those cloud technologies. I for sure wish that we had Campus Logic when I was at the University of Arizona. So many days I hated going to the financial aid office on the edge of campus and having to wait in line for a very long time just to submit a check. Well, it, that so I'll talk about Campus Logic on that note for a minute since we that's a problem we're focused on and today's students really don't want to go to the financial aid office. That's not a negative statement about the spectacular professionals we have in in financial aid at all. Usually people get into financial aid, the financial aid professionals get into that profession because they want to help students. But what they find is they spend a lot of their time chasing paper and uh, collecting documents and doing things that you might consider to be a low value added to the student. And they like to spend their time in more one-on-one counseling or really 
helping advise, advise students. So what we've built is a student self-service platform that frees the administrators from having to deal with all of the paper pushing that's out there and those manual processes. And uh, we make it easy for students to complete tasks and submit data and exchange documents with a school so that uh, administrators can be free to, to spend time on those higher value added activities. Who was your first customer? Our first customer was Fullerton College. Uh, they've got a director of financial aid there named Greg Ryan. He's, uh, he's one of those early adopters. He, you mentioned uh, long lines in the financial aid office. That's a problem he wanted to solve, particularly around new semester starts. He also uh, wanted to give students a mobile experience. And I think we were probably the first company he saw out there that had uh, was giving students a mobile experience around submitting documents and data uh, to, to schools. So he was an early adopter. We worked with him and their leadership team to, uh, to go live uh, last May. He's been, they've been a great client, uh, a great advocate. Since then, we added other schools like Colorado State University, Western Governors University. A lot of people don't know, but it's soon to be one of the largest schools in the country. They have 60,000 students. They're growing at 20% a year, not-for-profit, uh, all online a great school um, and, and a great customer for us, our biggest customer uh, as well. But we've been uh, fortunate to get some really strong industry leaders early in our life cycle, and that really is what uh, shapes a, an early-stage company like us. If you can get strong references early, you win, and if you don't, it's, it makes it tough. And so we've, been, we've had the good fortune of having really smart, uh, I, I like to call them rock star clients that uh, help us have helped shape the product, help shape the direction. They've been great advocates. At times, they've been patient early on before our product was was all the way done. And they, we just have a great set of customers. It's it's one of the things I love most about my job is are the schools we are able to work with, and also the students we're able to help. So, Greg. Um, I think it's pretty clear at this point, even this early on in uh, the episode, that um, you do a great job of telling the story about Campus Logic as it relates to um, creating a more quality narrative about education and education technology in Arizona. Um, but as far as the motivation that you have for uh, helping other companies within the state, uh, do the same thing. Uh, that's where uh, you're cre- creating a shared pool of resources. A cluster is, I think, the the general term for it. it's not a you know cereal or snack. A clusters is just uh, you know cluster of different companies that are coming together to um, have have unified goals in the way that they present themselves to the marketplace. Um, now, the thing with Arizona, though, that I feel like is um, a longstanding issue is whenever anyone mentions Arizona in education, the first thing that comes to anyone's mind, whether you're, not, whether you're in the state or elsewhere, is that we don't care about education here um, and that there's big funding issues and those have just been magnified in, uh, in the recent years. So, you know, the first question, I suppose, is how do you differentiate education from education technology in the way that um, it's presented to the public? Well, so a little bit of a little bit of my opinion about Arizona quickly. Um, so on the education front, it is true that in in many ways there have been education cuts. If you look at the 
we focus on higher education, so I'll just focus on, on that segment of the market. But we are one of the 20 or so states that have seen reductions in uh, state dollars going to higher ed uh, programs. Community colleges have been hit really hard with that. Our community college has been hit really hard with those with those budget cuts. But it's also not unique. There are a lot of states, and again, I mentioned, uh, I think there are about 20 states that have seen declines in state funding. So we're not unique in that regard. Uh, and so you can spend time complaining about it, or you can do something about it. And part of what motivates me is schools have to do more with less. That's a requirement that uh, certainly if you're under a budget cut situation, that's what you what you have to do. So part of our message is we want to deliver great tools that help schools do more with less. And the way you do that, self-service is a really huge part. Self-service is happening all over the world. Think about the way people are, cons- are, are interacting with companies or consuming services via uh, mobile applications or, or websites in general. And so we want to deliver those, uh, those technologies that allow schools to do that. So I think that's one distinction between uh, you know, education and education technology. Uh, the goal that you and others within your industry have are, it sounds like, essentially to enable school districts, K-12 through even, uh, colleges, higher education, to be able to provide quality service and, and customer support, if you will, for students without needing to even have to think about um, state funding so much by being able to just create efficiencies within the system and, and uh, extract out and uh, yeah, get rid of a lot of the inefficiencies and bureaucracy that might be involved. Yeah, really, the, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of, I don't know if irony is the right word, but uh, it's not like we're really driving this change. Really, consumers are driving this change. Uh, this is what students want. Students want to be able to consume anytime, anywhere access. Uh, a nine-to-five financial aid office makes no sense to a student who wakes up at noon and goes to bed at 4 a.m. because that's what a lot of college students do. And so, uh, and, and then also has a, a heavy set of classes that they're dealing with. And, and, and I know that I, I'm not trying to characterize all students waking up at noon, but the students, a lot of students I know <laughs> are night owls a lot more than than I am. So we want to give students anytime, anywhere access to processes across the institution. So it's not so much that we're driving that change. This is what consumers want. They get it everywhere else in their life. They can bank anywhere, anytime uh, that they want from their mobile. Uh, Nobody has a relationship with their insurance agent anymore, or very few do. There's disintermediation happening all over the place. You look at the number of trips we make to the bank now compared to what we did five, six, seven, eight years ago, nobody goes to the bank anymore. You, you'd like to never go to the bank if you could. Uh, I only I can... go because they give out lollipops. <laughs> That's literally yeah. the reason. Like I'll, I'll walk in, get my you know checks deposited, walk out with a bunch of yeah, those in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> but, we can, but we can do all, we can bank remotely, we can do so much remotely. This is really what consumers want. So we're really just addressing a, uh, a need that students already have and schools typically lack the, uh, they certainly don't have the, the budget to spend to build something internally. It makes no sense. They're in the education business, not in the software business. And so we're a software company that builds tools to enable self-service for students. From my experience, when I went to school, there was a 
software that I used pretty readily. It was called Blackboard. Um, come to find out, the founder of Blackboard lives here in Arizona, and he's been investing in a lot of ed tech companies because he believes in that same concept as the user experience and making that um, a much easier tool for the universities to connect with their students and provide information. Are there other people like this in Arizona that are helping to build this ed tech cluster? And if so, what are you guys doing um, as an ed tech cluster to further this initiative? Yeah, the founder of Blackboard you're referring to, his name's Matt Patinsky. Uh, Dr. Patinsky he was a professor at uh, ASU for a while, but um, he he founded Blackboard early in his career. He is uh, probably one of the uh, premier ed tech entrepreneurs in the country. He actually started the ed tech cluster here. He's been gathering a group of CEOs together for a couple of years now for quarterly meetups, and that's where I met him was through one of those. Um, I approached him a couple of months ago and said, hey, why don't we build a website, edtechaz.com, uh, to profile all of the great ed tech companies are, are, that are here. So Matt and I sponsored that uh, site together. But Matt really is uh, the, he's really the face of ed tech in Arizona in a lot of ways. He's done so much for the community here. He's now the CEO of Parchment. Parchment is a company that is bringing credentials online. So they started focused on uh, transcript exchange, uh, electronic transcript exchange. I think there are, I don't know, over 70 million paper transcripts that have been exchanged uh, every year, and they've built a platform to create electronic exchange of that. But where they're really headed is is credentials. And I can't remember the statistics for that company exactly, but it's something like one in every, you know, one of every two Americans, or maybe it's three in every four, has some credential. They might be a a licensed uh, uh, electrician, uh, or they might be a a plumber, or they might have a PhD in, in whatever, a CPA, whatever they have, they have some credential. And really where Parchment's going is they want to help manage those credentials online which is uh, a really disruptive and much, much needed uh, uh, space. So uh, they, he's done a, a ton to, to create and uh, foster that uh, ed tech cluster. I'm really just following in, in what he's let out. He also happens to be an investor in Campus Logic, so I feel really fortunate about that. There are others. There's a company called Synergist. And by the way, Parchment's raised... Uh, $50 million of outside capital that they've brought into the state. They've, they've added, uh, I, they probably have something like 100 employees now, most of whom are in Arizona. I think that's a, a rough number. So the economic development impact of that company has been huge here already. There's a company called Synergist based uh, in Mesa that is um, uh, an online enrollment enabler run by a guy named Norm Allgood, a great ed tech company they've also raised you know 40 or 50 million dollars of outside capital done a a, had a big economic development impact and then we have some a couple of companies that are here that are not based here but they have a huge presence here pearson has an enormous presence here they're probably the leading uh education company in many ways across the world and they have a very large presence here in chandler and then you've got companies like Blackboard that actually have a big uh, uh, presence here as well, primarily around their financial transaction business, but um, you know other 
other business as well. Blackboard has extended way beyond the learning management system and is now in all aspects of, of student services, both in K through 12 and higher ed. So those are a couple of the names here. We've also seen some smaller companies move here to be part of what's happening. There's a company called Useed uh, that I've gotten to know that team a bit. A really great team doing interesting things around um, crowdfunding for alumni giving. A very interesting platform um, and part of our uh, part of our ecosystem here. You've got uh, a number of other companies, and if you want to see the profiles of those companies, you can go to the website edtechaz.com and look at the company's profile page, and you'll see that. I was talking with a, a venture capital friend of mine the other day, and he said, I can't believe the huge number of edtech assets that are here. And that was really validating. And I said, well, that's right. That's why we put this website up is because most people aren't aware of what's happening in education technology in Arizona. And there are a lot of reasons for that, which, uh, which we can talk about. But um, uh, this is a great place to build a company in general, but it's also a great place to build an education technology company. So, Greg, um, with my company, ArpSource, at this point, it's just about five years old. Early on in its history, uh, we definitely um, made the most out of the different sorts of uh, support services that were available to us via incubators and other things like that. Um, and there, there's a lot of benefits that those sorts of systems have and obviously always room for improvement. Um, so with the EdTech cluster um, that you and, and Matt and others are forming here, how do you define some of the key differences between what a cluster is versus an incubator? I get asked that question a lot. You know, there's a lot of words like incubator, accelerator, um, that uh, co-working space. And what's the difference between those? And I think the opinions vary. A lot of times an incubator or an accelerator um, is taking equity for maybe some support services. And there are, there are some companies in town that, that do that uh, and also uh, beyond. But the in my opinion, and you, you know this from starting a company, but the, the, one of the best values that a young company can have is just plugging into the rest of the community. There are some really dark times in building a company. You know, people, people, we never talk about that usually in building a company. We don't talk about that enough, but you know that. There's and that's some, part of the reason for the show is to <laughs> touch upon those every once in a while. Yeah, so, so there's a, and so the way, you, the way we, we get through those dark times is through connecting with others, through hearing their stories. And I've got, I've got a lot of personal experiences that I can share about that with early investors and advisors that have been very, very helpful to me. But we need to do a better job, I think, as a community, not specific to EdTech, uh, although this is certainly the, one of the primary purposes of the EdTech cluster. But we need to do a better job of sharing our story, supporting each other, promoting each other, because that's, where, that's the power of the network, uh, is if, getting a group of, of people together that are willing to give more than they get. And that, uh, that's what creates a lot of power. So in EdTech, um, a lot of us, if, we're, if you look at people in higher ed, a lot of us are selling to the same schools. We're trying to talk to the same, address the same broad problems like replacing infrastructure at schools or change the way business is done at schools. And so sharing success stories or failures even, maybe even more importantly failures, uh, with each other that are specific to the industry and relevant to the, to the entrepreneur, that's what helps us uh, wade through 
the the problems that are are inherent to to building a company. So I think the ed tech cluster is good at that. Again, Matt has done such a great job of gathering people together to talk about what's going on in the industry. I think you'll see some more things coming out of this ed tech cluster where they're local. Uh, where we run a local symposium maybe once uh, or twice a year that are focused on trends in ed tech and, uh, and showcase some of the great uh, ed tech companies that are here. But we're just trying to bring more exposure to the uh, ed tech ecosystem here, uh, both for, for external purposes but also to support each other here locally. And I did go on the website at techaz.com and, and a lot of companies there and, uh, and I'm glad that you were able to describe some of them we could probably take uh, an entire show on its own to plug all of them so don't feel bad if any of the founders are listening to this and didn't get a plug but uh, I'm curious what is the uh, the vetting process that is involved in having companies come to you and be interested in, in joining the cluster and, and get their name on the website and just plug into that whole community well, I probably didn't answer the previous question about incubator versus uh, uh, accelerator, uh, and then and tie, to tie that into this question here as well. So we're not trying to take equity. We're not trying to uh, commit to uh, a set a set of services. We are purely trying to promote the ed tech companies that are here in town. So I feel like if the ed tech AZ community uh, it gets promoted, it's good for me. It's good for all of us. And so there's no, we're not trying to extract anything or get anything. So all you have to do if you want to get on the website, if you're running an ed tech company or early stage company, just send me an email and we will, uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, send me your logo. You can see the, the, the short descriptions that we've got on uh, each of the companies. It's a very short description. I think it's 20 word description or less, probably a 15 description, 15 word description. Send me that in an email and we'll put it up on the site and and get you connected okay because uh, the thing is is uh, as part of my background in, in uh, with arp source and doing a lot of work with in water technology development um, i've had some involvement in the formation of a water technology cluster in the state um, it's headquartered if you will in tucson at u of a but it's you know the goal is to have a statewide reach and even you know plug in other uh, companies from the the southwest region um, one of the concerns that I've had in uh, be observing that process and, and putting in my two cents about it is um, <clears throat> diluting the uh, the brand, if you will, or just diluting the credibility of what that cluster represents by, you know, having just all all players be part of it without any sort of um, you know, any sort of screening, I guess, because at least when it comes to water technology, you can, I mean, there's some ideas that are really out there. Okay. And because it's very science oriented, a lot of chemistry involved, a lot of, a lot of engineering of all sorts is that we could do ourselves a disservice by having uh, technologies or just business models that really probably are not going to work. Um, and, and so that is something that I've seen a bit of when it comes to the water industry. Do you share any of those kind of concerns? Well, that could happen at some point, but right now we're going from nothing to something. So we're trying to, uh, again, I, I mentioned this previously, but we, I continue to hear from people outside the state. I had no idea there were so many education technology companies in Arizona that are killing it. And, uh, uh, that's the response 
I want to hear over and over because that's that's evidence that we're building awareness. Maybe at some point there maybe there'll be another filter that we apply uh, for participation, but right now we're we're on the uh, more is better uh, philosophy. Let's bring everyone to the party. Everyone's got an invitation. If you want to be part of the community, we just ask that you you contribute and share and uh, and be part of promoting. Uh, the good name of the companies that are that are here, and uh, again at this point I think more is better. I was uh, meeting with uh, Desert Angels, one of our one of our investor groups, uh, and Arizona Technology Investors. These are the uh, Desert Angels is out of Tucson. Arizona Technology Investors here in the Valley, probably the two leading angel groups in Arizona. Great group. And we had Jim on as our oh, previous great. guest, yeah. so he mm-hmm. told yeah. us all about ATI. Yeah, they are great. So we had, uh, I, was, I was pitching, I think it was at Desert Angels, and there was another ed tech company who had moved to the Bay Area because they thought that Arizona was a lousy place to build an ed tech company. And I, you know, I really like this guy, but I kind of got in his face and said, you got to be kidding me. Uh, this, is, this is probably the best place to build an ed tech company. First of all, to build a company in general, uh, it's a, there's great access to labor, especially a technology company. There is great access coming out of, coming out of ASU uh, and, and uh, other schools, uh, U of A and other schools in the area, there is great, uh, great programming talent, great product talent. There is, the, there is great talent here to build a company. And, and I think that he just wasn't really aware of the great ed tech assets that are here. So what we don't want to have is great entrepreneurs with great ideas building great companies that don't think they can be successful in Arizona for some reason. And that that just can't happen. So uh, that's that's a big motivator, and that was also a motivator to to promote uh, EdTech AZ was just to make sure that uh, if you're building an EdTech company and you think it's going to be easier for some reason to build it in the Bay Area, then you need to think again. You need to you need to look at what we've got here, the assets we've got here, and tap into the uh, funding community on the on the angel side. Uh, tap into and also the mentorship that's available through all the ed tech companies that are here. This is just a great company to build, a great place to build an ed tech company. The resources from Arizona State University are spectacular. ASU sponsors the ASU GSV Summit, which is the uh, the number one ed tech conference in the world, and that's also part of our uh, part of ASU's legacy here in, in ed tech. So, and I could I could go on and on about the the, the ten reasons that on why Arizona is makes sense for the, to be the ed tech, uh, uh, position ourselves as the ed tech capital of the world. And there are some great other hubs, great hub in Boston, great hub in Baltimore, great hub in San Francisco, but certainly Arizona is one of the, the metro Phoenix area and, and, and inclusive of Tucson as well. Which it sounds like the network is one of the biggest benefits of joining this cluster uh, because you know, as the saying goes, it takes a village. So um, it just seems like joining the network that's here in Arizona instead of going somewhere else, um, it's really going to take people so, uh, places with their company. Yeah, a big driver for us in the network is uh, CEO to CEO access. You know, and, I, and I'll, I'll use an example that's outside of EdTech, but this is specific to Campus Logic. So a couple of years ago, we, we launched a beta version of our, of our self-service platform. And 
I think the right word appropriate for radio is uh, the product was lousy. I'll, I'll leave other, I'll leave other, I'll leave other uh, descriptors out. But the product just wasn't great. We it was a great idea, but the architecture wasn't right. Uh, we it was a, our first go at this product, and, and it just wasn't quite right. So I thought, you know, who has built a successful SaaS company here in in the Valley? SaaS being software as a service, if you don't know. Uh, who's built a successful software as a service company here in the Valley that could give me advice? So I called up uh, Clayton Mask, the um, the founder of Infusionsoft, arguably the most successful SaaS company in Arizona. And I said, hey, Clayton, can I have 15 minutes of your time, uh, maybe 20 minutes, at, at uh, any time of day you pick, uh, any place? I just want to ask you, I'm not going to tell you about my company, I just want to ask you what the early days of Infusionsoft were like. And so I got on his calendar, and I just listened. And I asked him a few questions and just listened. And I listened about the challenges that, uh, that they've had. Uh, I, I, you know, they'll pass. They've, they've raised. This is all public information, but they've raised you know, well over $100 million. They've, uh, they've got an enormous growth rate. Uh, their, I don't know what their revenue is, their private company, but uh, a highly successful company in Arizona. They now have probably five or 600 employees and a highly successful company. But they started out in someone's living room and, uh, or they've got the, the kind of the classic garage story and they struggled early. And I listened to the story and it was very, very motivating to hear, hey, this is what we struggled with. This is what we did to deal with the struggles. We just kept pushing through. We got uh, we got a little bit of financing, but we got customers to help finance what we were doing. We got we got early believers. I went out and found some early investors that that made sense. So um, that helped me refocus Campus Logic on, hey, we can we can do this. We can get through this trial. We can get through this challenge. And uh, so we put our heads down, and I took some of the advice and. And we made it through. And then about eight months later, um, Clayton Mask actually ended up becoming my first investor. Uh, as, and I wasn't asking for investment initially when we met. But that sort of story where we are sharing the good and the bad of building a company is very, very constructive for early stage entrepreneurs. And I think sometimes when companies fail, it's not that the idea is bad. It's not that the product's even bad. Uh, it's just maybe they didn't have access to the right mentorship and didn't push through those dark times where, hey, in one or two months from now, things are going to look a lot different. You just have to keep pushing. So uh, we need to do a better job of being each other's cheerleaders. And uh, and I think to the extent you can get specific in an industry like ed tech, that's even more con- more constructive. But even cross industries like the experience I had with the Infusionsoft uh, guys, that uh, that's how we can help each other be uh, build a stronger ed tech community, but even more broadly, a stronger uh, entrepreneurial uh, or uh, entrepreneurial environment uh, here in Arizona. Well, Greg, let's take a moment then to uh, perhaps have you pay it forward in a way by sharing a story that you've had with either Campus Logic or any of your other past companies about a particular uh, teachable moment. Let's call it you know a particular struggle that um, that you faced and by by luck or by skill uh, were able to overcome and uh, you know and the goal is to you know just like you did with 
Clayton Mask and being able to talk to him face to face. If nothing else, you can share um, such a similar story with everyone who uh, is listening to this episode. Well, I'll probably share a little more color commentary about that specific experience in the summer of 13. So in, uh, I was at a conference in the summer of 13. There's a large financial aid conference every year. We presented the, uh, the, this beta version. We put one, we had put one customer on the beta version and we were demoing the product and our tech team just couldn't get the product to, to perform very well. So in fact, uh, I was demoing the product in this conference room in Las Vegas during this trade show, and the the demo, we couldn't get the demo to work before the conference, so we actually took a video of the demo, and there was so much latency in the product, like the page loads were so slow, because there's a ton of logic in our application, we... Um, we actually had to splice, I had to video it and then splice out the latency and the page loads and um, to make it actually look like a real demo. And so um, that's how bad the, the, the product was. And I'm in, uh, I'm in a meeting, I'm in this conference room and we're demoing the product and getting decent feedback on, the, on, our, fake, on our fake demo here. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, um, but in between, I've got my... Uh, you know, a, a close friend of mine who, who ran kind of product at the time and my, uh, you know, my, my head of head of technology stand up in the conference room and are having a, you know, pretty good argument about how lousy the product was and whose fault it was and all that. And so I left the conference and, and then I also had, we had one, we had one beta user on it who was a great, a great customer, a great school um, and I had to tell them, look, uh, I, you can't use the product anymore. We're, we're giving up on this version of the product. So in that period of time, so I, I left there uh, and I drove to meet my family on vacation. Uh, and the, as I was driving there, I'm thinking, I've got no product. I've got no, I don't have the right team because we're fighting like crazy. Uh, I, the architecture of the product wasn't right and I have no capital and that's a pretty dark moment you know to feel like I got nothing here but you, but here, but what I so so I, I resolved uh, while I was on vacation I, uh, which there's not much not much real true vacation in building a company <laughs> maybe I wasn't in the office but it didn't feel much like a vacation for my wife or my kids for sure um, but the uh, but what I resolved to do was I need a new team, and I need uh, I either need to give up on the product, uh, or we've got to figure this out. And what really stuck with me was, and this is I've got a lot of conviction here. Um, I've sold most of what I own to invest in this company because I believe that we are transforming the way financial aid is administered in this country. And so I I've been pretty committed. I'm, I've uh, I've invested at every level in the in the company, but in that moment, I thought, well, what do I have? Rather than focus on what I don't have, what do I have here? And here's what I have: I had uh, three customer contracts that we hadn't gone live with, um, some of which had, some of whom have paid us uh, also. And I thought, and these guys believe in the vision. That means a lot. If you've got people willing to write a check for something that you don't have yet, that means a whole lot. So I called up those customers and I said, will you hang with us for six months 
while we while we rearchitect. And thankfully, they said yes, and we we gave them. And so I kind of rebuilt the team. We rebuilt the product. We had a lot of the foundation, but a lot of it needed to change. We rebuilt that. Um, we were fortunate to pick up a little bit of investment during that time and people that believed in us. But that was uh, that was a moment where we really had to push through. And I, I always encourage entrepreneurs to don't tell me what you don't have. Tell me what you have uh, that you can build off of. What you, what you don't have doesn't matter. And so tell me what you have and tell me what else you need. And let's figure out a way to, to get to what you need. And so for us, um, and I always tell I always tell entrepreneurs this, I'm not sure what's more important than getting customers in, in business. Can you ha- so getting early customers is critical. It does so much for you. It validates that people are willing to pay for your product, even if your product's not all the way ready. And so, and it's easy to lose focus on that. There's so much to do as an entrepreneur. You, you get gotta, too wrapped up in raising money and trying to score a big valuation, whatever. But that's exactly who cares right. if you're not selling any product and yeah, making money. Yeah, that's exactly great point, Mark. And or you get too focused on. This sounds funny, but you get too focused on your product. Your product doesn't have to be perfect before you sell it. And there's so much to do as an entrepreneur. You've got to, uh, you, you know, you've got to get your product. You've got to make sure you are, are hiring the right employees and making sure your employees are getting paychecks and, and uh, keeping the team together. But at the end of the day, if you can't get people to, to pay for your product, you don't have a company. And so that, as I focused on that and thought, hey, we do have people that want what we have. We just, we don't, or want what, want what we will have. Right. We just don't have it yet. And so as I refocused on that, and I also got good advice from people like Clay Mask and, and others, uh, and Matt Patinsky also gave some good advice uh, during that period of time, long before he was an investor. And, uh, but, but, but that advice and, and refocus is really what, uh, what kept us going. But I gave, a, I gave a presentation at Startup Week, which if you're in Arizona and you're, and you're at all entrepreneurial, you need to attend uh, Phoenix Startup Week. It's a, it's a spectacular event. Um, but that, uh, I gave this presentation. I talked about winning early customers, but that is a real key thing that entrepreneurs need to never lose sight of. Every day you should be focused on building you know, what can you do to, to build the top line of the business? Because that's what investors need. It's also what employees need. And it also shapes your product. You don't want to spend time building stuff that people don't want. So uh, that's a really critical thing that's easy to lose sight of when you're in the, when you're, when you're down in the trenches. So, um, well, you mentioned how in between having to splice away to create a, a demo video and having arguments uh, between all your um, your core team members, and then having to call customers and say, "Hey, can you wait six months till we can deliver you product?" I mean, that must have been a long six months. And so, for example, um, in 2014, uh, you know, ArpSource had a couple nice little wins, but a lot of a lot of bad things that happened, and it ended up really affecting me personally. And because, I mean, I'm the sole founder of the company and poured in um, my heart and soul and all my energy into it. And I felt that um, it got to the point where because we were having more losses than wins, I mean, it, it, I, I reflected that kind of outcome on myself. 
and ended up feeling really crappy about it. Um, so I'm cu- always curious to hear from other founders about um, how to manage um, keeping yourself personally invested in the business to the point where you're passionate about it, but at the same time, not getting maybe too wrapped up in it to where your that your personal self-esteem is too closely tied to the business and as a result can make for some pretty volatile situations. Well, first and foremost, not everyone should be a founder. You know, it's for a variety of reasons. It's uh, it's hard, and and not that other jobs aren't hard, but there's a there's a massive amount of uncertainty, and that's hard. Uncertainty is not for everyone. You know, there's a whole lot of uncertainty in dealing with. And also, um, I love work and I love building companies, but it's not more important to me than my marriage. It's not more important to me than my you know family. So I happen to be married to uh, an entrepreneur's wife. So in that dark moment, what I didn't tell you also is I said, uh, Jill, maybe, I, maybe we should just, maybe I should just scrap it. You know, maybe I should do that. And she said, that's not what you do. That's not what we're doing. That's not what you're doing. <laughs> that's not who you are. And so, uh, you know, I, I happen to be in a situation where my support system is, uh, while, while my wife would never start a company because that's not, she doesn't have the risk profile to do it. She's plenty smart to do it, uh, has a great educational background to do it. But, um, uh, but that's just not, you know, that's not what she would do. She recognizes that's who I am. And so I've, I've got that uh, support system. I think that's pretty important. I don't think we talk about that enough as founders. Um, I'm certainly not willing to trade my marriage for a, a company. But, um, and I would, I would, I would challenge someone if, if, you know, if, if they think building a company is more important than, than that, uh, I wouldn't invest in, in a company like that. Right? <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to back a founder that thinks that this is more important than other things. Uh, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think if you've, I think, I think things can be managed. I think if you look at successful entrepreneurs, uh, they can, uh, they can manage those those aspects, but but also we don't talk about failure enough. It's easy to talk about successes, but most of us have had had failures. You know, I've invested in I invested in a company that the company's still around, but it hasn't really met our expectations. It's making a little bit of money, which is great, but it's not. Uh, it hasn't grown, and so and then we've had I've had other things. Um, you know, I invested in several real estate transactions that I thought were going to be home runs where we got crushed on it and they went to zero. And, uh, sometimes it's easy to look at someone who's having current success and think it's been easy for them or they've always had successes. And really anyone who's had successes has also had failures. And I wish all of us did a better job. I need to do a better job of talking about our failures. But, uh, you know, I think, I think we need to do a better job of talking about that because it's, we need to normalize failure to a large extent. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is um, when I snapped out of this trance uh, that I had and just, uh, you know, having too tight of a grip on the company, I think a lot of that came from the fact that I felt like if I did have to close the doors without any sort of successful, uh, you know, story to cap it off and exit whatever else that uh, – 
that it would just, you know, be a, a black mark on my reputation forever. And that uh, because as a younger entrepreneur, I founded the company um, right out of undergrad, basically, is that, you know, having that without any other sort of uh, significant industry background to, you know, retreat to as far as getting another job or something. I, just, I, I felt really scared that, um, you know, the f- failing, failing would just be the, the end of the road for me which now just sounds pretty ridiculous when I, I think about it in retrospect. But um, I think that a lot of the other young entrepreneurs that I encounter, um, yeah, probably fear failing um, more than they need to, as I did. At the same time, um, I think that, we, you know, there is a bit of a issue of younger founders coming in and, you know, saying that they founded a company on paper, but it's not really a company. It's just a resume builder, basically. And so I think there you got to kind of balance it out where you need to put a solid effort in no matter what, uh, but you don't need to worry about failing as long as you did give it a true effort and didn't do it simply as a resume building exercise and, you know, just to win a couple business plan competitions mm-hmm. or something. I was... Um so I didn't mention this, but uh, the first startup I went to, I didn't, uh, I didn't found it, but I was employee number three or four at a company here in Arizona called LeapSource. It was, at the time, the most well-funded company in the history of Arizona. We raised $65 million in 1999, and the company lasted about 18 months, burned through most of the capital, um, and, and ultimately failed. Part of why... Part of the next success I had with the first company I started was Core 3. Part of that success was a function of the past failure. It, it was so dissatisfying to have all this money in a startup and not be able to execute or perform. And I, I just wanted to do it differently. It didn't, it didn't demotivate me to start a company. It motivated me to start a company that, that I was running uh, directly and to do it in a more bootstrapped way. Sometimes I think companies have too much money. They raise too much money, and I think that was the case with that company. So I think failure can be so constructive to future successes. Uh, I love it when I talk to an entrepreneur who's had a failure because they have perspective. Uh, Failure and perspective are highly correlated. Um, So I I love that. that aspect of failure. The other, the other thing I would comment on what you said, Mark, it would be really quite odd for someone who's had a, a dark spot in a, in a company or a failure to not feel like you said you felt, you know, where it's a personal extension. You're, you know, you meet, you're asking, you're asking your co-founders or your early employees to believe in you and believe in the vision. So, you're asking, you're extending yourself. That's probably the toughest part yeah. is having other people rely on you. Exactly. Yeah, so you're asking them to do that. You're asking early investors to believe in you and believe in the vision. So if it doesn't work out, you feel it's, it's totally natural to feel like, gosh, I've let down these employees. I've let down my investors. I even let down my customer, my early customers, because I couldn't get enough customers to make it work. So I would be quite concerned if if i if i met a founder who didn't feel some (laughs) personal extension in the wake of that how can you not feel this is you know one of the expressions i've always hated is uh it's not it's not personal it's business 
it's always personal, you know, for entrepreneurship is highly personal. You're because for the reason for the dynamics I mentioned, uh, you can be as honest as you, as uh, you can be the most honest person in the world. But at the end of the day, you are trying to paint a picture. You're building vision. You're building vision with customers. You're getting them to buy something that doesn't exist yet. Or uh, you're getting, you're getting uh, investors to, to invest in something that doesn't fully exist yet. And they know that you're getting employees to, to uh, be part of a company that doesn't, you know, fully can't stand on its own yet because it's losing money. So uh, it, it is always personal. And uh, I think we need to talk about that personal side of entrepreneurship. And, and one way to do that is to talk more publicly about our, you know, I think our successes are good, but failures, as I've mentioned, I just think are so much more constructive to future success. I think that's a requirement. I hope our listeners agree with you because they're certainly getting a, a nice dose of it here today. And um, I'd imagine that it's these sorts of stories and, um, and best practices that you try to share among all the different members of your EdTech cluster. Yeah, I, I, I would say, um, I would say, think if I were, if I were, if, if someone's listening to the podcast, who's in one of those dark spots in a company, I would, uh, I would encourage you to, if you don't have advisors, find advisors and listen to what they say. Um, but, but listen to more than one, you know, collect a lot of information. If you, you know, I, everyone's always got opinion and part of the challenge for an entrepreneur, especially a young entrepreneur is to weed through uh, the right feedback, right? Everyone's got an opinion about how you should organize your sales model, what what the product should do or shouldn't do. Uh, I've had people say, yeah, you should go raise 10 million. Okay, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's easier said than done. Um, everyone's got an opinion and, and it's, a, it's a founder's job to wade through that opinion. My opinion is that uh, and, and my and my uh, kind of podcast cheerleading effort here is push through those dark spots by getting uh, good advisors around you, getting good investors around you, and uh, do all you can. And uh, if you're in the right, if you're in a market that that is looking for your product with enough effort, and you mentioned um, hard work, skill, and luck, there's usually a combination of all of those things. Uh, with the right combination of those things, then uh, uh, I think the success rate can be uh, can be pushed up. So, Greg, we're going to take a quick sponsor break here, and when we come back, we'll cap off our interview today with uh, our executive insight round. Our sponsor for today is the Center for Entrepreneurial Innovation, a division of the Maricopa Corporate College. CEI is a business incubator that provides office and wet lab space and specialty equipment to help you commercialize your disruptive technology, whether it be medical, software, or clean energy related. So if you're a tech startup looking for assistance, go to ceigateway.com and click on the apply button to get started. And we're back. Uh, so we're here with Greg Scoresby, founder CEO of Campus Logic. And to uh, cap off our discussion today, Greg, 
we um, like to end each of our startups A to Z podcast episodes with what we call the executive insight round. These are uh, quirky, quick response type questions just to um, get a little bit of additional insight into how you do things or how you think about things. So um, sounds, sounds scary. Yeah, well, it, it's not supposed <laughs> to be. Don't be nervous. We want you to have fun. Question number one, what are some of the favorite apps that you use on your cell phone? So uh, we've been using Slack uh, at, at work quite a bit. Uh, Slack's a great app. Uh, it's a great replacement for team communication, uh, but I love that. Uh, love that app. Team communication, meaning instead of many-to-many email exchange, Slack's been great. I'm a huge LinkedIn user, so the LinkedIn mobile app I use quite a bit. Um, my my job primarily is uh, to find employees, find capital, set strategy, and so finding people is a key part of what I do, and LinkedIn's a great app for that. What's your favorite board game or card game? Well, we've been playing this game with my kids. Uh, it's called Lucky Under, uh, Lucky Unders or Twos and Tens, I guess it's called. But we play we play cards with our family quite a bit. But we were on uh, we were on vacation the other day for a few days, and my teenage boys were teaching me how to play Texas Hold'em. So I'm not so sure. I'm not sure. Not sure how good I felt about my teenagers uh, gambling, but. Uh, they're they're not quite as good at strategy as as I am, so I, I cleaned house. What was the last awkward situation you were in, and how'd you handle it? Well, because I don't always say the right theme, I'm a thing. I'm in awkward situations uh, a lot. But um, right. the other day, I walked out of the office with Hillary, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and I had something in my nose, <laughs> and I swear I had a booger from hanging from my nose. And I think Hillary saw it the whole time and didn't tell me about it. I, might, I swear I did not see I anything, wrong, but I thought, well, how'd you handle it? Well, I of course wiped my nose, but it was after I'd already left the meeting with the mayor of Gilbert and the staff. So I thought, come on guys, we're friends here. Can't you tell me if I've got something hanging from my nose? Well, I didn't notice anything, and I'm I'm pretty short, so okay. I'll tell you next time. <laughs> um, what's a skill or topic you're not knowledgeable about, but wish you were? You know, I wish I could sing, and I wish I could play the piano, but uh, not enough to actually take piano lessons. So, uh, but I do really, I do really admire people that have musical talent. As a serial entrepreneur, um, what do you think is the best age to found or join a startup company? Well, you're asking someone with some serious biases towards starting a company, but earlier is better. I, uh, I, I'd say that the right there, there's, there are better times than others to, uh, to start companies probably in your life. But if you have, if you have an idea you're passionate about, and you feel conviction. Uh, conviction needs to carry an entrepreneur through those dark times, and so you better have a lot of conviction that you're solving a real problem. Otherwise, you'll be you'll have a tough time pushing through. But so at any stage in your life, really, and we see this. I, I see this across the board. There are young entrepreneurs and old entrepreneurs. But um, uh, if you've got conviction and you can solve a problem, I think that's the time. 
you'll notice, I think you look at successful entrepreneurs, most of them are inherently motivated. You know, there's something in them that, that they have to solve a problem. The problem's there. Other, someone else could solve it, but, and it's not so much that they are looking for fame or fortune, but the, the problem is bothersome to them. It, it's annoying, and they need to solve that problem. They know they can. And that tends to be the profile of successful entrepreneurs that I, I see. Last question for you. If you could give yourself advice and go back in time, give yourself advice to when you first uh, left Arthur Anderson and became part of the startup environment, uh, what, what, would you, what advice would you give yourself? I probably would say connect with other people in the community earlier. Um, but for two reasons. One, because it's beneficial to uh, a startup and a founder like I've talked about in this interview. But also, there's a lot of opportunities to give back. And, you know, that, that sort of community giving, uh, I'm not talking about money, but, uh, you know, time. Giving time like yeah. is having uh, you on as our guest today. Yeah, giving yeah. time and trying to contribute. Uh, that stuff always comes back to you in, in one form or another uh, you know, if you're not, you know, whether you're looking for it or not, it always comes back if you can take time out of your schedule to uh, to meet with other people. So engaging a little bit more with the startup community and the, and the business community more generally. But it's natural to be pretty focused when you start a company to be focused on everything that company needs at the moment. But, uh, you know, adding another, you know, 30 to 60 minutes a week to engage and connect outside of the company. Uh, is probably something I would would advise myself to do earlier in my career. Build up some good karma. Yep. I'm, I, I'm in favor of that. Um, okay, great. Well, uh, that closes out our executive insight round. So um, uh, thank you, Greg, for doing that. Uh, so I think it's time to wrap up. Right, Hillary? Yes, it is. Greg, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. It was a really great episode, not just for our listeners, but for me personally. Talking about your battle wounds is just huge. And so thank you for opening up to uh, talking about that. I know that some of that's hard, but as we talked about, it's um, necessary for everyone to learn. It's easier to talk about now that it's in the past. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Those scars have healed. So what's the best way that people can learn more about you online and and get in touch if uh, they so desire? Well, LinkedIn, of course. I think it's... uh that's always the best way to engage with me. Okay. Um, so you can go to campuslogic.com to learn more about your company. Visit, and- our, visit our website. Uh, take a look at uh, products and services there. Please check out EdTechAZ if you're interested in the EdTech community. Find a way to get engaged there and help some of the great budding companies we have in Arizona. And uh, happy to connect with you on LinkedIn. Well, thank you to all our guests and listeners. Again, follow us at on Twitter at Startups A to Z. Facebook, Startups A to Z, and our website, startupsa2z.com. Okay, till next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. <laughs>